Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Verity Jones is an associate professor in UWE Bristol School of Education and Childhood. Her research focuses on pathways to social and environmental justice. Verity has worked with charities including Friends of the Earth, Fashion Revolution and the Centre for Alternative Technology. She has developed insights into pedagogies of hope in the face of the climate and ecological emergency and has highlighted the importance of arts-based practices to support sustainable education in the UK and India. Welcome, Verity. How are you? I'm fine. It's really good to be talking to you, Cathy. Well, we're very excited to be doing this podcast because I think possibly you're the first person we've ever interviewed about this enormously critical issue of climate change, environmental issues, sustainable fashion. So, you know, forgive me because this isn't an area of my expertise. So I'm going to stick quite rigidly to our research template or questions, if you don't mind, Verity. So I've introduced you, I've done your bio, but I know that you recently surveyed a very large group of young people and you were finding out what they know about climate change and environmental issues. Can you tell us a little bit about that survey and what the key findings were? Yes, so back in 2021, there was a survey done for adults in Britain about what they felt about climate change and how engaged they were in actual mitigating some of the issues. And myself and Tessa Podpaddock at the University of West of England recognised that once again, young people were invisible to this discussion, which is really important when we, we think about children, you know, our current year sixes, by 2030, when the Sustainable Development Goals kind of come to fruition and hopefully will have mitigated some of the world's greatest issues, our year sixes in 2023 will be 18 and of voting age. So I think it's incredibly important that we listen to what our young people are thinking, what they want to do, what they think are the important issues for their future as well as everybody else's future. So yes, we went out, we did a survey with over a thousand young people from across the UK and found some things that were very similar to adults, but also things that were quite significantly different. So for example... Young children were really confident in understanding, far more confident than adults with issues and and understanding around carbon emissions, greenhouse gases, renewable energy, eco-footprinting. What they and adults didn't really have much conceptualisation about was fast fashion, which is interesting in that this is a huge, produces 10% of carbon emissions. It's the third largest industry after automation and oil. So we saw that as a significant thing that perhaps education might be interesting to work around fast fashion. Young people also recognise the importance of political leaders in mitigating climate change, but weren't very familiar with some of the things that were going on and some of the important decisions that were being made. So for example, there has been 
political increase and money being put towards the creation of nuclear power. Over half of young people weren't very keen on the idea of putting lots of funds into the creation of nuclear power stations for power. There was also a recognition that climate change impacts people's lives both in the UK and abroad. That was interesting. Adults don't necessarily recognise that climate change is impacting on people in the UK. And perhaps finally, and most importantly around when we think about the impact of climate change on our young people's mental health and well-being, lots of young people were talking about how they felt that, yes, that they could see that industrial leaders were important and, and political leaders were important, but actually they felt a lot of the onus was left to them and they were having to, to, to make the changes. It was up to them to change. And whilst on the one hand, that's great that, you know, we could read that as, yes, our young people are feeling empowered. That's fantastic. But on the other thing, we really need to recognise that having that weight on their shoulders is really important to recognise and we need to be able to support our children in navigating that pressure. And we've been increasingly hearing about the impact of the climate crisis on young people's mental health, as you've just alluded to. The Royal College of Psychiatrists have launched a resource to support young people and their parents to manage fears and anxiety about the environment back in 2020. And their website, I think, states that over 57% of child and adolescent psychiatrists in England are seeing children and young people distressed about the climate, the state of the environment. And I think ACAM devoted an entire journal to the subject last year. I think there was a large study on climate anxiety published in 2021 as well. So before we start to talk about your projects, can you just contextualize what we know about the impact of the climate crisis on mental health? We know that eco-anxiety is common, but what do we know about their sort of experience of it? And, you know, what differences are we seeing in those different age groups, if you like? Yeah, of course. So eco-anxiety, some psychologists are now wanting to use the term eco-empathy, or you might hear the term eco-emotional response as well. So not necessarily eco-anxiety. Like many things, our response to, to threat and worry and concern, such as the climate, can result in very small worries and concerns to quite severe mental health concerns. So it might be that a child is worried at school and and shows it physically, that that they they might be sad, they might be upset and the same at home. This can often, as I'm sure many parents out there will recognise, this can often be at bedtime. So it can be when those worries really kind of get going and children find it difficult to sleep or wake up in the night and are having nightmares. It might also, because mental health is really complex, we we might see it also go um, towards things like reduction in food, not wanting to eat, not wanting to use things that are really, really important. So perhaps not recognising that we need to save water and therefore not drinking enough. Or not even getting in the car because like quite sort of Absolutely. A lot of rigidity around those sort of decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at Greta Thunberg uh, as an example, she was mute for many years because of her anxiety around the climate action. So that's perhaps a useful, perhaps an e- extreme example to look at. Wow, fascinating. 
And we know that climate education can actually be important and it's sort of counterintuitive, but in reducing eco anxiety and do initiatives like having an eco council at school, like could that help with this sort of issue? You know, what, what would optimal look like in that school environment? I mean, with any sort of anxiety, you have to validate and understand what young people are thinking and feeling first, obviously. Yeah, we have to make sure that things aren't tokenistic. From our research with young people, they recognise that we have government authority figures who are talking the talk, but they're not necessarily walking the walk. So having an eco-council is great. Having opportunity to amplify young people's voices and concerns is really important. But if we then turn away and don't actually act on those, then we're doing them a disservice. If, as part of our English activities, we're writing to politicians or the local council about an issue that we're really passionate about and we mark them and put them in their books and forget about them, we're doing them a disservice. We need to be posting those to our local councillors and our governments so that the young people have their voices heard and recognised. So I think there is a really important thing about looking at what actions can we take and not just actions that the individual can take. Because quite often, young people will say, well, what is the point of me turning off the light? You know, what what difference is that going to make? So we need to look at that in terms of if everybody turns off the light, what would this difference do? But also look for good news stories. Good news stories are so, so important. If we can find an example of, and you mentioned that I'm really interested in fashion and fast fashion. So if, for example, we can find a company that is doing great work around reducing the social environmental impacts of of clothes, then let's look at that in the classroom. Let's have this good news story and then work out how we can contribute towards that good news story rather than thinking it's just up to us thinking of ourselves as part of a cog in this big change cycle is what is needed so that, as I said earlier, we don't feel that weight on our shoulders and our young people don't feel that weight on our shoulders, that it's them alone that can make the change. And we don't want all those negative case studies. You know, I think one of the issues that contributes to anxiety in general is children's digital diets. You know, they open up their phone in the morning and there's news of apocalypse or nuclear war, or and it can be incredibly difficult even for adults to navigate that kind of threat um, mentally. And I think that there's something about, I love the idea of schools collating good practice, good things that are happening and, and, and sort of channeling children's energies into that so that they feel the sort of collation of that, the good things that are happening in the world and being part of that. They, they do have agency, but it's actually going somewhere. Absolutely. And I think traditionally, climate change education, sustainable education has been dedicated within perhaps geography and science. And the way that it's taught is here is the knowledge about climate change. There it is. And right, you've now learned about it rather than taking that step back and going, here is the information. Let's see if there's any misunderstandings or misconceptions that we need to tease out. Let's talk about how you feel about it and have dedicated space to reflect on your feelings about it and accept that yes it is scary then look at the good news stories what's going on and then move into action if we're ready to do that yeah I really love that approach of actually caring about the emotional impact of the climate education it's not just presenting it and hoping it kind of lands 
and hoping children can make sense of it naturally. You've noted in your work the importance of climate change training for teachers in order to build confidence that they can deliver this material and knowledge. And given the DOV guidance against schools showing support for activist groups, this can be quite difficult and scary for teachers to think about because they're not really sure, you know, what the difference is between sort of positive activism and something that might breach the law and, you know, where the boundaries are. I think you're absolutely right. But if we look at that guidance document, it specifically says that climate change and global warming has been accepted by scientists. So therefore, it it is absolutely fine to teach about this in the classroom. So our impartiality guidance can be calmed by that. And we are quite able to, to teach that. Teacher training is absolutely essential. And we know that teachers need guidance and support on not only the subject knowledge around the area, but the appropriate pedagogies, what lots of people are turning pedagogies of hope, so that we can frame frame our climate education in ongoing hopefulness and positivity. And have you seen and witnessed best practice in terms of, say, primary and secondary education? So let's talk about what optimal might look like if you are, for example, a primary school teacher. At the moment, climate change does tend to be based on the person who watches Blue Planet. So if anybody, if anyone out there is watching Blue Planet and you mention that in the staff room, then you're the person who's probably going to be the science or the geography lead in a primary school. Um, So what does good climate change education look like in school? We've got some fantastic schools that are doing a brilliant job that are taking sustainability, taking climate change education, the sustainable development goals and mapping it onto the whole of their curriculum. We've got primary schools and secondary schools here in Bristol that are are doing just that. And in, in secondary school, I think that's really interesting how where you are very dictated by subjects and the need for exams. I'm not saying that in primary school it isn't. We we have that push for progress, but really positive way of looking at it so that it's not just reduced to certain areas of the curriculum. It's not just the curriculum that we're looking at and how to to teach it, but also our procurement procedures. So where are we buying things from? Can we buy locally? Can we reduce our plastic? What's happening to our waste? So we have a full system and a holistic approach to sustainability. So once again, we're not just talking the talk, but we are walking the walk and really being role models for our children so that they can see you know, how it might be done. And there is help and guidance out there. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because in a school at the moment with the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, balancing, you know, care for the environment in addition to sort of sustaining a school building, arguably there's a case to to sort of sort of expose that difficulty to older students, GCSE, A-level students, and help them be part of puzzling out where to spend money and how to spend money and and the difficulty, the real difficulty in navigating and balancing priorities, you know, that sort of budgeting, you know, maybe that's something students could actually, you know, you can imagine A-level math students or economics or geography students being part and parcel of that kind of planning process. Yeah. And I think we we also have to recognise the the different lived experiences that our children come from as well. So the children who perhaps live in high rise flats, we talk to them as part of our research and our teaching. And you can't assume that these children have access to recycling. So 
as a teacher, we quite often go in and think, oh, yeah, reduce, reuse, recycle. That's a nice, easy lesson. And, you know, children can really get excited about that. And yet in many high rise flats, the council doesn't offer the opportunity for those residents to engage in that. And then how does that make that young person feel? They aren't able to to do something that's very practical, very easy, but it's too difficult at the moment for certain areas to engage in. So we have to be very sensitive to our children's lived experiences and what is possible and what isn't possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you've mentioned sort of the diffusion of hope in lessons and that pedagogy of hope, which sounds gorgeous. You know, in terms of, I think you were involved with a very interesting project. We've actually written about this project in our Wednesday Wisdom, the Fog Monsters Project. And that was about, I think, active coping mechanisms, protective factors, how to become a sort of an active community citizen. So for those who've never heard of that project, tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so Fog Monsters or Living with Fog Monsters is the picture book that is the result of some research that we did, the VIP Clear Research, which was funded by the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And it took place over the pandemic. And we were particularly looking at how children responded and recovered from the pandemic. So a a moment of crisis, of social crisis. And what we found during that time, and we worked with, closely worked with over 200 children, but there were about 700 children in the total project from age six to 11. What we found was that the children's response to that crisis was really similar to how they will respond and do respond to other social crises. So that they were, yes, they were scared and they had all of these anxieties around it that we've just talked about with climate anxiety, but they also recognised the need for community cohesion, the need for access to outdoor spaces, the need to work together and and be prepared. So all of those issues that come about. So we, we then wrote, informed by that research, we wrote this children's book, which is freely available as an e-copy. And from there, it's been really interesting taking that now into classes with primary age children and then recognising, saying, yes, this is, the, the fog monsters is this metaphor for any kind of disaster or crisis that, that is coming that we can't see, these invisible threats. So it could be drought, it could be flooding, it could be well, climate change is a, a big issue, it could be austerity, it could be further diseases. And then how do two children navigate that how do they make sense of it how do they create hope within these times and then work together with the local community in order to make things better it sounds gorgeous like anyone listening who's working in a primary school for goodness sake download it fog monsters it's amazing and you mentioned sort of good news bad news stories earlier so if children have seen you know an article about when the sun dies or something about apocalypse, which is not uncommon, or the doomsday clock or something like that. From a teacher's perspective, what little tips would you give there in terms of navigating and you know creating that sort of sense of digital literacy or critical thinking? Of course. Well, as a teacher, it is really important to acknowledge children's experiences and how they're feeling so not to brush it under the carpet and say oh don't be silly or or even just completely ignore it because that can 
turn children away and kind of put their head in the sand and and those issues can then be internalized and potentially can get worse so acknowledging issues is really important first and foremost then once we've acknowledged the issues and accepted that yes this is quite scary it is then the okay let's make sure that your understanding is accurate (laughs) and that there aren't any misconceptions there and let's look for those good news stories now we talk about digital literacy. So checking what's going on in a number of places is really good practice for the, the children to recognise that they need to double up on where they're getting their information from. Lots of people are negative about social media, but if you can use TikTok, and lots of our young people are using TikTok, if we can use that in a positive way, then it's absolutely fantastic. So there's EcoTok, there's Good News EcoTok, And they're fantastic, really short people, usually a lot younger than me, (laughs) uh, but well-informed young people who are giving out great examples of good news stories from around the world. And it is just based on good news stories that you can share with your class so that it's a platform the children are familiar with and that they can engage with at home. It sounds like that kind of optimal age, sort of year six, seven, eight, something there where they were probably on social media, familiar with TikTok, but you're sort of nudging them towards hopefully algorithms as well will start nudging them towards much more meaningful content. So that's interesting. So I think the myths and the misinformation in this area can be particularly problematic even for teachers because they're not sure where it is, what is a good source of information. Recently, I think a colleague was told by the head of a pharmaceutical company that coloured plastics, for example, are not recyclable due to the colour pigmentation contamination and therefore the vast majority of what goes is recycled goes to landfill. So that kind of comment or information people don't really know what to do with recently my 13 year old said mommy there's no point recycling it all just goes to another country it's dumped in their country so how do we as adults even work out what's you know a good idea or not it is really difficult and things are changing all over time for teachers I would really recommend if they're not already perhaps to become a member of the Geographical Association that provide all sorts of really interesting information, training, and also a regular newsletter and magazine. So that's really useful. We've also, I run the Climate Change Primary Education Research Network, and we meet once a term for an hour after school. It's all online and we share research around climate education. We share storybooks that are really useful in the classroom and look at the new policy that's coming up and how we need to engage in it. So everyone is welcome to join that. If you have time and think, actually, I really need to gen up, then I would really recommend looking at the General Teaching Council of Scotland. Scotland have got a different curriculum to England. Climate and sustainability is incredibly embedded within it, just like in Wales. And on the General Teaching Council for Scotland, they have modules for teachers on embedding sustainability into teaching, which is freely accessible for everybody. If people are thinking, actually, I just need some teaching ideas, then I would recommend looking at the world's largest lesson. I work with the Global Goal Centre, and we've got a fantastic resource hub on there. And then Cumbroggy Futures also run amazing residentials out in Pembrokeshire. So if you wanted to have access to those kind of experiences, or even take children on those kind of experiences, that's there. And then that nitty gritty of planning that everybody worries about. 
So if you're thinking, well, I don't know what age-related climate change education looks like. How do I know what to teach a five-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 15-year-old? How do I know that? Then I would really recommend looking at the Leeds Development Education Centre who have done it all for you. And it's fantastic. Wow. The last five minutes have been so valuable for schools. I'm so excited for teachers to finally have lots of sort of structure and ideas there and ready-made material that's evidence-based as well. You've mentioned taking children on sort of school trips or residentials. I think this is very interesting what impact does actually spending time in nature have in terms of children's approaches to eco issues or eco anxiety? And, you know, just in your experience from your work. Spending time in nature is essential. Getting children outside, well, getting anybody outside is proven to be excellent for our well-being. But it also, if we can harbour a positive relationship with nature by the age of 10, then we are on to a winner. So if we can, that is incredibly important. Now, with the lockdowns, with the pandemic, with an increasing concern over risk for our young people and an increase on the use of digital, then actually getting children outside can be really difficult. That doesn't mean to say that all is lost because I've been doing research recently about how reading about nature how about reading climate fiction, some people call it cli-fi or eco-literacy, how that can also begin to develop those relationships and that empathy for nature that we really need to harbour. So the choice of children's book that we are using in our classrooms and have access to at homes is equally as important as the messages that we give when we're actually outside as well. And there must be specialist booksellers selling this particular content that, te- you know, it's very difficult for a primary school teacher to work out what is an optimal kind of book to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been working on that this week, actually. You know, how do we as teachers work out what what's good? You know, we may have a hero figure, for example, but that hero figure it's up to them as the hero figure, which is a child, and all of the, the weight is on them. For example, in the Lorax, we've got that as a brilliant eco story that is fabulous, but actually everything, that you know, the world's going to pot and it's up to that one child to start planting that seed. So as a teacher, we have to be really careful about, yeah, this is brilliant, yeah, look, look what's happening, but then unpick that, oh, Is it just down to one person? How would we rewrite that ending? And perhaps thinking about it in those kind of terms. Yeah, because the weight of responsibility on children can be overwhelming. We heard from a parent who heard we were going to be interviewing you and their child is fascinated by natural history, deeply upset by images of animals suffering due to climate change. You see that on the adverts on the television and they're regularly shown on documentaries such as Blue Planet short of always cutting the program short, you know, what makes it obvious and doesn't fool a nine-year-old, this parent asks? That's so difficult because the information is out there. Our young people are bombarded by images of polar bears on increasingly small ice caps. And it goes back to having that open conversation about, okay, what, what have we just seen? Let's talk about it. How do you feel about it? Let's find out some more information and do some checking and let's work out who's working towards positivity, who's helping this and and how can we help this as well? 
Yeah, I can imagine that parent facilitating like a conversation between her nine-year-old and the and the head of a charity that supports, I don't know, something, some charity that works to support polar bears or and really engaging them in that process. Yeah, I've just been working with Friends of the Earth and we've been working on exactly that. So we've been talking to parents and children about how they navigate it and Friends of the Earth are in the process of developing some resources to help with that as well. Lovely. Wow, that's brilliant. And I know you've worked on a project, produced resources for Key Stage 2 and 3 teachers to use as part of geography lessons on sustainable fashion. How important is it to incorporate this subject into learning? And can you tell us a little bit about that particular project? Yeah. So fast fashion, as I said, is really important. It's, you know, one of the biggest industries that we've got. Um, Well, it's the third biggest manufacturing industry. And yet over $500 billion worth of clothing are dumped or burnt every year of unsold stock. We've got 93% of brands not paying workers a living wage let alone all of the pollution. So between 10 and 20% of pesticides that are used worldwide are related to the fashion industry. I mean, it's got massive environmental and social impacts, the fast fashion industry. So it makes sense that we think about it. If we look at the English national curriculum in geography, we know that we need to investigate trade. A lot of schools do fair trade for that. And we would encourage people to think outside the box and think about clothing. Clothing is our second skin. We carry it around with us all the time. We've got our favourite jumpers. We've got our favourite pyjamas. We've got the, the party dress that might sit in the cupboard for those special occasions. And clothing has a really intimate place in our lives because of this. So it means that it is a hook for our children. We can immediately say, okay, everyone, let's look at the labels on our clothes. And straight away, people are looking and they're going, well, I don't know what polyester is. What's that? And then it'll say where it's made. And then we we talk about, okay, so let's look on the map. And then you can start telling a story. And I think once we're getting into a story, that makes it come alive. And then we can think about how our clothes have been touched and manufactured and what their impact is. But what, again, is really important, that learning is great. But what we don't want is children going home and saying, right, we can't buy from X, Y and Z shop anymore. I'm not going to wear this article of clothing because of who made it. And therefore put pressure onto families to not buy from the the shops that they can afford to. What we need to be thinking about is wearing our clothes for longer donating our clothes to perhaps other members of the family because we know that lots of our donated clothes do get dumped on the African continent. So we need to try and keep them in circulation for longer. Potentially washing our clothes less would have a huge improvement. So I always try and encourage people, especially at secondary school, to do the sniff test. And just because it's been on your bedroom floor doesn't necessarily mean that it has to go in the dirty washing. (laughs) Sometimes my teenagers will just dump clean clothes on the floor and I'll say, but just imagine what this poor piece of clothing that's perfectly clean has to be put through. And in fact, the impact on the planet of our clothing is greatest after we buy it. So the energy it takes to wash it, remembering that microfiber, microfiber plastic, every time we wash anything that's got polyester or synthetic materials in between 
I think it's something like 70,000 microplastics are going into our water system with every wash. We've also got the impact of the energy, of the water. So if we can disrupt any part of that, if we can teach mending skills, hugely important. And we're not mending because we can't afford something new. We're mending because we can't afford to keep throwing things away. Absolutely. You've already, you know, made me think about my own cupboard. I'm sitting here, you know, thinking about what I can do. And we're aware of schemes run by large companies like H&M, M&S, Shoe, John Lewis, New Look, where you can actually swap old clothes for vouchers. Are these schemes worth using from a sustainability perspective? I've seen that H&M are actually recycling old clothes into new fabrics rather than sending them to landfill. But it's quite hard to decipher whether or not these are good ideas or not. I think we always have to be careful of greenwashing, especially by large companies. If anyone is interested in to find out how transparent companies are, then I'd really suggest that they go to Fashion Revolution and look at their transparency index, which they update every year. And you can see how well each company is doing. So that's a fantastic resource. I think anything that is raising the profile of reducing the impact of fashion is positive. We do have to sometimes take with a pinch of salt what some brands are doing. So, for example, whilst H&M might be doing fantastic things on disrupting the, the dumping stage, are they supporting the workers, for example? Have they signed up to the Bangladeshi Accord, which is a really important bit of policy that protects workers? So we need to kind of think about these. Now, this, these are really complex. And in actual fact, if it makes you feel better that you're doing something by taking that stuff back to the shop and donating it back, then that is helping your well-being and you're feeling part of this larger process. And that is fantastic. Just, as I say, disrupting that cycle is one of the most important things. And young people, teenagers can ask questions on Twitter. Once you know what the right question to ask, you know, has your company signed up to the Bangladeshi Accord is not a question I would have been familiar with. But I think having those armed with the right questions is incredibly exciting and important and working out what they are with your class is critical, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, I do lots of work with Fashion Revolution, which is an international charity, and we really encourage people on social media to use the hashtag who made my clothes and the hashtag what's in my clothes. And every time that that is used, it is documented through them as well so that they know how many times and who is asking the question. What it also indicates, and we've had this from good authority from businesses, is that for every one person that is asking those questions, it actually equates to the businesses recognising that over a thousand people are thinking it. So the more people that are asking the questions, the likelihood is that our voices will be amplified and that businesses will take notice and change practice. Yeah, I really love that. That's fantastic. And in terms of climate change role models, well, you're one of them, (laughs) uh, but children are very familiar with Greta Thunberg. There's a danger that everything is kind of just centered on Greta Thunberg when there are thousands, millions even of climate change activists or change role models. Who would you say, if you had to pick five that you'd want my children to know about, who would they sort of be? Again, a really interesting question. And I think that Greta is fantastic. She's really recognisable and she's done some fantastic work. 
when we worked with children in primary schools and said, you know, who, who do you think is going to change the, the way that the climate is being dealt with? Lots of children drew and talked about Greta. Now, whilst that's wonderful, I think we do have to recognise that she is a white woman and that we need to have representation from all of the different ethnicities on the planet to, to show that everybody has a place in the environmental road to mitigation. So who would I do? I'm Bristol-based, so I would definitely have Bird Girl, who is absolutely fantastic, and I would recommend that people have a look at Bird Girl's book. Her name is Maya Rose. So look at Maya Rose's book, and she has written a book about lots of young environmental activists. So I'm not going to say anything about who I would choose because I think it's really important that other people choose their own. (laughs) Amazing. I can't wait to look up Bird Girl. And I think you mentioned something about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Are there any particular interesting resources within that? Ellen MacArthur Foundation is fantastic. They are all about disrupting fast fashion. They're all about trying to reduce the impact of industry on the planet. There are some fantastic, really short videos on there that young people and adults alike will just go, wow, that really makes sense to me. Very visual. So, for example, showing how you mentioned how H&M are taking a product and then making it into another product. They've got this fabulous video of how jeans can be stripped back to their threads and remade into something else. And it's a brilliant visualization for children to go, I get it. I cannot wait to look for all of these and gather them up and create some sort of, you know, signposting resource for teachers and parents. So lastly, Verity, what are you doing today? What are you working on? Tell us what's on the horizon for you. All right. Okay. So today, today I am working on a great project with Chris Bear at Cardiff University, and we're looking at the Welsh curriculum and how they are promoting ethical citizenship through food systems. So we're looking at food in schools, how children make sense of the food that they get to choose, and specifically looking at proteins. So proteins are really important to our diets, and yet we know that certain proteins have huge environmental impacts. So we know that soya has a huge environmental impact from rainforest deforestation. We know that beef has massive impact on the amount of energy used and the amount of greenhouse gases produced as a result of that. We're looking at how proteins are made sense of and what kind of future foods might be interesting. Wow. Oh, I just love to spend all day in your office listening to all these amazing conversations. So listen, if anybody wants to follow your specific work, how would they sort of do that? How would they connect with you if they're a teacher listening or they want to learn more about your research? Well, if anyone's interested in uh, getting involved in the Climate Change Primary Education Research Network, I'd be delighted to send you information about that. Our next meeting is in March, so it'd be lovely to see anyone there. If you just Google me, Verity Jones at UE, U-W-E, then you'll find my profile and my email and you'll find me on all of the social networks. And my handle is Verity Jones underscore E-D-U. 
Last question. We work with schools in Italy and Greece. And one of the questions from one of our teachers is whether you would include, you know, our teachers from other countries. Is there any way they can engage with your research as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always interested not only to talk to people about the research that we do, but also work with schools and education systems across the world. I'm working with some fantastic people in Calcutta in India at the moment on the fashion programme. I work across Europe on digital citizenship and engagement in climate activity. So I'm more than happy to talk. Okay, thank you, Verity. On behalf of the planet for everything that you do to help. And, you know, we're really excited. Thank you so much for all your valuable, valuable tips and signposts. Thanks so much. It's been great to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. <laughs>